Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Patrick Collison, CEO of the payments company Stripe, his payment company, which is only five years old, but last year served 40% of people who bought something online. So it is it has become an absolutely integral part of the internet's plumbing, and particularly its payment plumbing. He is also just a fascinating, brilliant, polymathic guy. This is a conversation that goes everywhere from how he built Stripe to the Enlightenment to the online community of rationalists to whether or not we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the long-term future, to how does one learn or create culture inside of a company. You'll hear this. He's able to footnote his own speech in a way that I find completely amazing. His recall is really something to behold. I enjoyed talking to him tremendously. I always do. I think you will like it as well. As always, please share the show on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever sharing is done. Please check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where I go deep into policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. And continue to suggest guests and give me feedback at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. So here is Patrick Collison for a very, very interesting, very unusual, very fun conversation about everything that I could think of. <laughs> Patrick Collison, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So where did the idea for Stripe come from? What was the problem you were trying to solve? Well, I think there were two slightly different kind of ideas in Stripe. There was kind of the narrow sort of thought and, and impetus that made us kind of build the first prototype. And then there was a the thing that made us take it seriously and continue to work on it. And so the thing that made us build the prototype was the simple observation that it's really freaking difficult to go and to simply accept credit card payments, to accept money from customers through the Internet. And this is such a, a basic operation, something kind of so fundamental and, and so kind of conceptually straightforward that one would think that in 2010, this would simply be a solved problem and no kind of significant further innovation would be possible. And that's certainly what we thought. And when we built websites or apps or whatever, and we kind of hunted for something to go and, to, to go and do that, we expected there to be a, a really straightforward way to accomplish it. And we gradually realized over the course of weeks kind of searching for, for this solution that it did not in fact exist and that the opportunity was present to go and to 
again, simply build a, a, a website, a, a service you go sign up for, enter some basic details about your business, and start charging your customers' credit cards, customers from anywhere in the world through the internet. But that sounds and so, that, so was, that was kind of the, go ahead. That sounds surprising. I mean, I was buying things on the internet in 2010. Right. I was buying right. things from Amazon. I had a PayPal account. And, and so just yes. speaking to me as a layman, you couldn't just plug PayPal in? How are so, people doing this? I was buying things on eBay. I mean, something was happening there in the payment space. Exactly. So it was because this experience already existed that we assumed, therefore, there had to be a service that made it pretty straightforward. But what turned out uh, you know, as, as we learn more about it, to, to be the case was that these services, these kind of payments accepting services, were being provided by banks, by financial entities. And as a consequence, they, they really weren't well equipped as technology companies. And so what you sort of saw in the hosting industry was that sort of initially to just run a website, you had to go procure your own server and connect it to you know, a reliable internet connection and so forth. And then sort of the barrier to entry gradually got lower and lower and lower with sort of first managed hosting and then kind of virtual hosting and, and you know, WordPress and blogs and, and things like that. And that kind of in tandem with that, as the activation energy became lower, far more people started to, to build websites, to host them and, and so on. And so, yes, it was absolutely possible. It was, it was technically feasible from, say, the mid-90s to go and to accept credit card payments over the internet. But even as of 2010, it was still extremely difficult to do so. To actually just set up the necessary components was sort of like having to go to a bank and get a mortgage. I mean, there was, there was literal paperwork involved and, and weeks of delay. And so what we sort of build was kind of the, the virtualized server, if you, if you want to sort of draw an analogy, as compared to the sort of dedicated physical servers that you had to go buy and, and kind of procure and set up before. And so it wasn't that we were going from a world in which it was completely impossible to one in which you now could, but rather a world where it took weeks of setup to a world where you could go and do it in five minutes. Was the challenge there technical or was it a regulatory challenge? Sort of both, in that I think that the banks weren't able to solve it because they weren't technology companies, and the technology companies were at least hesitant to go and try to solve it because of the perceived, not just regulatory, but just kind of financial complication that you had to go and understand various aspects of banking and, and the financial system in general and how all these components fit together. And so I think because it sort of lay on the liminal boundary between these two different sectors, and you had to be pretty good at both of them, each side was either unwilling or incapable to go and to properly solve it. And it was at this point just you and your brother, right? That's right. And so we built the first prototype back in January of 2010. And, you know, it, it was really held together with string and tape and, and so on. It was, it was kind of a functional prototype that you know, was technically able to handle a couple of payments, but really was not capable of any kind of meaningful scale or, or sort of serious operation. But it was enough to give us a sense that this might actually work. It sort of was a, an instantiated prototype of, of what we thought was possible. And it was enough to go and to show people and, and even to show financial institutions and to get them to at least tentatively agree to, to kind of work with us to support it. But, but I'll just quickly flag here that to your kind of initial question is this what the original impetus was. You know, this aspect of it, this just mechanical impediment to accepting payments was, was kind of part of it. But there was a second aspect that basically made us some months later take it seriously, which was the realization that kind of back to your point that, well, online transactions were happening. The realization that, yes, online transactions were happening, but in aggregate, they're such a, a minuscule fraction still of the overall economy. 
back when we were starting Stripe, online spending as a fraction of total consumer spending was still about 2%. 98% was still kind of not just offline, but in some kind of deep sense, not yet internet-enabled or connected or something along those lines. And so that even though there was the Amazons and the Zapposes and, and so forth that happened, that there was some kind of meaningful way in which the economy had not yet transformed itself into the internet-enabled version. And so that we perhaps weren't as late to the party as maybe you know, our initial intuition had, uh, had made us feel. I really am fascinated by the story of Stripe. And one of the reasons I've always found it fascinating is that I think that when we imagine business narratives, we are pretty comfortable with the idea of something like a Facebook. There weren't social media apps, really. I mean, it, or there was Friendster, but there, there wasn't really a social media space. And then all of a sudden there was. And so, of course, you right. have really big companies emerge out of that. Or, or we're comfortable with companies that have some kind of massive technological innovation powering them. But it's very strange, I think, to try to imagine a company that can grow as fast as you guys have out of a space where what you were doing was being done before and had big players in it. And just somehow the particular combination of consumer friendliness and technological speed hadn't been put together. So I guess abstracting out from Stripe... What do you think the characteristics were of the market and of markets like that? What do you think the characteristics were of the sort of opportunity that you guys saw? Well, I think that's a very interesting and true observation. And I think actually Stripe is is maybe a little bit less exceptional in that regard than it perhaps appears. And I think this is a sort of underappreciated dynamic in a lot of quite prominently successful companies. and. Part of your question is, to what degree is Stripe singular here, or to what degree is this the character of sort of many really successful technology companies? And so you've had Stuart from Slack on the show, and there have been umpteen successful group chat applications before Slack. Group chat applications have been around basically not only uh, since the dawn of the web, but in fact even before the dawn of the web. As you point out, there were social networks before Facebook, there were smartphones before the iPhone, there were search engines before Google. And so I think part of the problem is that there's a version of this for the economy overall, but we always want to look at broad, structural, highly abstracted measures of things, the shape of an industry, the diffusion of some technology and so forth. And that necessarily loses information. It's kind of a necessarily low fidelity perspective. And I think for so much of technology, the details really matter and and, and kind of a tremendous bearing on the outcome. And when you ask, why does the iPhone still command such a tremendous degree of pricing power relative to other smartphones, to Android and so forth. There's no single big structural reason. It's all these kind of minutia and details. And why did Slack grow so quickly despite the thousands of other group chat systems that existed? It was no singular feature. It was the the sort of the ensemble and the composition and so on. And so, again, I think your sort of assessment of Stripe is sort of correct in the sense that it was no one particular thing. And people often sort of, I think, look for what's the the secret in Stripe that they can replicate or that's sort of our Samsonite hair um, and (laughs) are, are uncomfortable with the fact because it doesn't feel rigorous that it's actually that this kind of delicate composition of all these different details in this approach. 
again, somehow I think that this can be extended to the overall economy where we always want to look at the macroeconomic measures and are kind of less comfortable diving deep into specific companies and specific trends. And so, yeah, I think I think it's a much broader phenomenon. See, that's interesting because I thought you were going to go and, and was almost trying to back you into, into a different answer, which maybe relates to my preference for macroeconomics over microeconomics, <laughs> which is... Something you said that I thought was very interesting was that the correct measure was not were people doing this, but how many were doing it versus how many obviously would be doing it. And I think Slack actually speaks to that pretty clearly. So before I was on Slack at the Washington Post, I was on HipChat. And that was pretty early in this generation of well-integrated enterprise chat software. I mean, as you say, there was a lot of chat software before, but for enterprise use, it was pretty weak, actually. I mean, you had Campfire and Mm -hmm. and things like that. But Mm -hmm. it was clear that at some point, if you were able to imagine and if you believed that the way workplaces would communicate was digitally and it would be on some kind of enterprise software, not on email... Then it was mm-hmm. obvious that there was a huge, huge market that was very immature. And I feel like right. the, the interesting thing, the interesting argument you made a, a minute ago is that when you guys started, 2% of purchases were happening online. And that was clearly going to grow. So we were clearly in an immature market. And that maybe that is part of why this looks wrong to people because they're looking at the wrong side of the equation. They're looking at whether or not there is a product as opposed right. to they're looking at whether or not the market has actually developed maturity such that it would have this sort of incumbents that would make right, you think right, the right. problem was largely solved. Yeah. And maybe kind of extending that if you <laughs> continuing sort of your preference, if, if you wanted to kind of find a, a structural generalization of this. There are various, perhaps, concentric markets in group chat software. There's you know, nerds who use IRC, and then there's people who will you know, use one of Slack's predecessors and perhaps put up with the kind of rough edges and so forth. And then there's just knowledge workers in general and so on. And sort of for each of those markets, there's some threshold of kind of product quality that you know, the, the solution has to be above in, in order to sort of become broadly adopted, such that you can kind of get these various thresholds of kind of these critical thresholds where you get kind of discontinuous changes in, in the outcomes. And I think you're right that with Stripe, before the market was people who were able to, were willing to, and could put up with all of the hassle imposed by financial institutions, and the market of people whose businesses would be sort of obviously seen as worthy by financial institutions, which is actually a a smaller set. It's like the things that didn't look strange or surprising to banks and to financial institutions. And then by making it far easier to set up and by broadening the set of business models that could be implemented by supporting mobile applications and crowdfunding and new kinds of marketplaces and so forth, that actually that increase, even though it's still the same kind of thing in some way, actually massively increases the market size in some sense. And so I I think perhaps you can connect these concepts together. Something that interests me about this generation of fast-growing technology companies is their ability to enter very highly regulated markets and prosper in them. Uber Mm. is, I think, for everybody, the canonical example, in part because of how aggressive Uber has been. Their approach to regulation has often been really to bulldoze through it and then try to build up enough of a user base that they could defend themselves against the, the eventual efforts to regulate them down. You guys, I don't think, to my knowledge, have not had as confrontational approach, but but I am interested to know how, as you scaled up and went into different states and into different countries, you thought about building the regulatory side of your of your operation, because I see where you're 
technological chops came from. If I'm not wrong, you were at MIT. You and your brother, you fit the the stereotype of, of young whiz kids, but not the stereotype of people who would be really good at building an organization to regulate a pretty difficult regulatory right. uh, landscape. Well, this is kind of a whole conversation to be had, I think, about the intersection between technology and regulation and what we should conclude from the fact that two of the most successful, well, not just private technology companies, but even sort of private companies in the US started in the last 10 years have had such regulatory challenges and how I think that implies that there there may be far more sort of potential entities in that set, but that didn't have founders and CEOs as kind of bullheaded as Travis and Brian Chesky and sort of consequently didn't make it. But sort of on, on the Stripe point in particular, I think there are kind of two reasons as to why sort of you're right, we, we've had a, a much more straightforward time. One is that sort of in terms of the product itself, we're building a technology layer on top of largely existing financial infrastructure and sort of making it easier to onboard and easier to sort of connect infrastructure in different countries together and so forth. But that because we're so largely in the realm of technology, it isn't as challengingly regulated. But then secondly, and I think this is actually probably the bigger reason, the structural consequence of Stripe is that more new businesses are started and those businesses grow larger, faster and so forth. But it's not zero sum in that we're not stealing these businesses away from sort of existing companies. These are in, in so many cases, these are businesses that simply would not otherwise exist or we are facilitating transactions that would not otherwise happen. Whereas I think with both Uber and Airbnb, while of course, and you see this quite clearly in the data, that they are kind of they are net positive in that there are sort of vacations and stays that happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. There are rides that take place that would not have taken place in taxis. There is at least a kind of perceived way in which they are more zero-sum. There are deeply entrenched industries and lobbies that are connected that can sort of object to these structural forces. And so I think because we weren't competing with a hotel industry or uh, a taxi lobby or sort of against some other powerful industry sector, I think that's actually the primary reason as to why we've had a much more straightforward time of it. Let's talk through the, the regulatory side in, in the microwave for a second, because I think that's actually a very interesting conversation. So one read of it, as you say, is that we have had a couple of companies, Uber again being, being the big example, that were able to prosper in regulated industries because their founders were just such unbelievable fighters, right? That the Travis Kalanick and it just won't stop. And another way of looking at Uber and Airbnb, and frankly, a lot of what's happened in, in the tech space. I mean, Theranos became a, a, a billion-dollar company, and I think the regulators were actually on top of this one, but without having a product mm -hmm. that even worked. Another way of looking at it is that, you know, maybe the rap that regulators get is overblown. Maybe they're not trying so hard to stop a new entrance. Maybe they are easier to deal with than people think. If all these companies can emerge in a matter of a couple of years and become not just national but international companies in super highly regulated spaces, maybe the story or the excuse of the regulators who stop everything has actually been overblown. So... I think I disagree with you. A lot of the criticism of, uh, start with a slight tangent, some of the criticism leveled at Silicon Valley in terms of building apps for you know, people who don't need more apps or, or who are already having a fairly easy time in their lives or being sort of solipsistic or inward looking, narrow minded, you know, whatever, all, all these kind of charges that are some of the um, popular stereotypes. 
I generally disagree with them in the sense that I think the problem with Silicon Valley is not that the people are ill-intentioned or they're quote-unquote bad in some sense. And and I think that to kind of impute that in some way is is sort of a lazy answer uh, and and take on it. I think kind of the more interesting question is how could it be the case uh, or in what ways is it the case that people in Silicon Valley, as with people in in the vast majority of places in the world, are good people with really good intentions, and that somehow there are some structural forces and sets of incentives and so forth that might kind of tilt things in the wrong direction. And so kind of similarly with regulators, I think that regulators really understand the trade-off intrinsically present in any regulation between fostering that which is new and unexpected and so forth and protecting the body politic and society and, and guarding against tail risk and and so forth. And I think the problem is that there's this inevitable ratchet effect, just structurally speaking, where we get to observe when regulations fail to prevent something pernicious or harmful or problematic or dangerous. And we largely don't get to observe, we almost never get to observe, when regulations prevent something that would be really good. If regulations had been more stringently implemented and had prevented the rise of Airbnb and Uber, we would not today be having a heated conversation about how problematic it is that that had happened. This isn't uh, so heated. It would remain... <laughs> I'm sorry? This isn't so heated. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if regulations had prevented Uber, we should be mad, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's sort of a, a, a major theft in an opportunity cost sense. But we wouldn't know. And so similarly, there almost certainly are services that are as valuable as Uber or Airbnb that have been stifled, that don't exist. But because kind of deeply, epistemically, we don't know what they are, we, we sort of can't be mad about it. Uh, and so I think this is the challenge with, with regulations and with regulators. And, and it's not at all that I think that they're short-sighted or uh, uh, don't care about this. Or I, I think it's just it's intrinsic in, in the nature of regulation. And as a society, I think we've... we've we generally tended towards trying to engineer lower variants, and that does successfully curtail the tails on the left and all the, all the downsides, but there are tails on the right too. One of the things I'm fascinated by in the regulatory space, and maybe this is a question that you have an answer to, but I think it's one that I need to go find an answer to, is that I am sympathetic to the idea that there is a buildup and accumulation of regulation. I think the economist Michael Mandel has described it as sort of enough stones in a river becoming a dam that right. over time has become problematic and problematic in the way you, you suggest. Not so much that people are being stopped from doing things, but we don't know what is not happening because mm-hmm. people aren't trying. And right. yet what, what's fascinating to me about that is that I actually don't know anyone who disagrees. I was reminded the other day that the Clinton administration had an entire major initiative that was about cleaning out old regulations. They were succeeded by the Bush administration, which basically didn't believe in regulations. And they've been succeeded by the Obama administration, which, as its initial regulatory czar, Cass Sunstein, was again a guy Mm -hmm. who was very, very, very interested, as is Obama, in cleaning out old regulations. And yet nobody ever seems to believe that despite having democratic administrations that take as one of the ways in which they imagine themselves to be new Democrats or market-friendly Democrats Mm -hmm. is that they are skeptical of the accumulation of regulations. And despite 
having Republican administrations, which are much more fundamentally skeptical of regulation, nobody ever seems to feel that the cleaning gets done. And now maybe there's a political economy here where it is just impossible for reasons I do not understand to unwind old regulations, or maybe we are overestimating the extent of the buildup, but something right. here is tracking very strangely. I very much agree with you. And again, I think Sunstein is a good example. I think Sunstein is great. And he wrote this really nice paper recently about sort of a take on his time in government with the observation that sort of people are well-intentioned. They really want to do the right thing. And they're very thoughtful about generally the approaches that are taken and the decisions that are made and so on. And so I think he's kind of a good example of how the problem is not in some sense the regulators. To the extent that it's a problem, it's, it's more structural. And absolutely, nobody will disagree with this in the abstract. And yet we confront the phenomenon that on the one hand, we are deeply dissatisfied about sort of the state of consumer banking and the CFBB sort of is <laughs> bounded only by their own bandwidth in terms of the cases they can you know, take on behalf of consumers and so on. And yet, on the other hand, three new banking charters have been issued since 2010. We have largely outlawed the creation of new banks. It is increasingly somewhere between prohibitive and impossible to attempt to, to do something to to solve this problem. Uh, and so, again, what is, I, what I is that problem that you just referred to? I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the yep. fact that we don't charter new banks, but I'm curious when you say this problem, what was the problem? The problem, broadly speaking, again, is I think the regulatory impediments to doing new things. But I guess maybe the, the meta problem is why are we collectively incapable of going and doing something about that and fixing it? And I think this actually in some ways ties back to kind of our prior conversation about sort of what was it that was different about Stripe and, and, and Slack and Google and Facebook and so forth that sort of enabled their rise and this notion that the details really matter. And I think it's so easy for there to be such perniciously unintended consequences of regulations. It's so difficult to diagnose what's going to be prevented by this and what kind of interactions there'll be between particular laws and, 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 and so forth. And I think maybe where I disagree with Sunstein is I think he's more optimistic than I am that we can cost regulations, that we can anticipate what the adverse effects are likely to be. To give an example here from sort of our own domain, generally speaking, Stripe does not do much which is quote-unquote innovative from a regulatory standpoint in that we're facilitating electronic payments. Electronic payments have been facilitated for a very long time, and that's kind of generally a, a well-trodden path. However, something new we are doing is working with so many platforms and marketplaces and sort of new services that are looking to coordinate these networks of buyers and sellers or uh, riders and drivers and, 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 and so forth, thousands of them at this point. And in practice, one of the primary challenges in doing this ends up being how do you verify the identity of these marketplace participants at scale? How do you verify identities in multiple countries and so forth? And really the regulatory regime and apparatus here, it just it, this was never contemplated, right? These regulations were all crafted back when identity verification meant utility statements presented in person at a bank. And so we're here trying to figure out what's the digital version of this? How do we discharge all of our legal obligations in every market? But sort of what does it mean in this new domain that, again, just had not been contemplated when the laws were kind of first conceived? And so when you think about this is such an arcane detail, it's like, how do identity documents work for the purposes of KYC and, and 
MTL and, uh, or rather AML, excuse me, uh, uh, sort of regulations. What do these all mean in this new kind of industry and business model? This is such an arcane detail. I think it's kind of unreasonable to expect that any regulator could possibly anticipate this sort of downstream consequence. And this is obviously in, in just kind of one very narrow area. And so I think there's kind of a question of whether this is an exception, where there's this significant adverse unintended consequence, or whether this is actually kind of the broad character where as people conceive of new things to do, that they will sort of very frequently encounter some stipulation or barrier or something that, that one might not even realize a priori would be implicated. And I think it's more that. Here's a hypothesis I would make. If I were going to try to test the claim that regulation is preventing the emergence of, of a lot of really great companies, different countries, different advanced countries have very mm -hmm. different regulatory structures. There are things some of them allow, things others don't. And so I would expect to see there are, would be more companies that we would envy in other countries, that we would knowingly envy than there are. And there are some, and I can think of some. I mean, it was a long time, actually, after Spotify started. And this wasn't, I think, a regulatory problem. But before they were able to cut the deals, given America's licensing laws and, and the American record companies, to actually come to America. And I remember reading about this sort of mm -hmm. magic music streaming service happening in Sweden or wherever it was that it began. But are, are there examples of companies that exist in Europe or exist in Japan or exist in Canada that you look and you think, if that was allowed here, it would be a billion-dollar business, but it just isn't? Sure. The UK has a number of very interesting and nascently successful consumer banking startups. And I'm quite confident that one or more of them is, is you know, going to be substantially successful. And my assumption for quite a while has been that the future of consumer banking is going to be invented outside of the US and eventually, through consumer pressure, transplanted back here as American consumers come to demand it. And obviously, I'm, I'm a little bit you know, more deeply involved in the sort of financial sector and financial technology and so on. And I'm sure there are abundant examples of this in sort of all sorts of different regulated industries, be it healthcare or education and what have you. Having said that, I should caveat that my claim is not that regulatory impediments are the primary determinant of the aggregate rate of progress or of technological advancement or, or something like that. My claim would simply be that it's, it is substantially underestimated, again, because of these sort of impossible to foresee ex ante effects and, and, and impediments. But, but I don't want to sound like I think that this is somehow the the dominant or even the, the, the sort of, well, the sole or even the dominant thing that we should focus on. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. 
You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask about another factor then, which is immigration and our broad immigration laws. How much of an impediment to, again, to companies that we are not upset about because they haven't happened but would have? Right. The grammar here just got very garbled. But how much of an impediment <laughs> do you think our immigration laws are? If, if we were able to let in substantially larger numbers of skilled or unskilled immigrants and we were able to make right. those decisions much more smoothly, do you think right. that that would have a big macro effect on the companies that can get formed? I mean, the data certainly suggests so, right? In that on the order of, you know, there's kind of various analyses of this, on the order of 40% uh, of successful companies in Silicon Valley have at least one immigrant founder. And that certainly kind of um, 40%? matches. 40% uh, is it's a lot. You know, from at least one particular analysis that I saw. But I, I've seen numbers that are even higher. That I, I've certainly seen the claim of, of it being as high as 50%. And it kind of depends rather uh, on your definition of an immigrant and you know, first, second generation and, and so forth. But you know, this finding is robustly observed not only in Silicon Valley. It's not just that the kind of technology or Silicon Valley is exceptional. Uh, there, there's this nice paper this year, I think, from Sari Kerr and William Kerr showing that based on census data, 40% of all new firms in the U.S. have at least one uh, immigrant founder, despite immigrants themselves being about you know, 15% uh, of, of the workforce. That certainly seems suggestive. And you know, there's other data along these lines that you know, there's obviously the potential displacement effect and sort of the skating rink and so on, where perhaps if we see more skilled immigration, that that will tend to reduce or you know, somehow exert downward pressure on the wages of existing residents and inhabitants. And perhaps all these immigrant entrepreneurs are just substituting for you know, would-be native entrepreneurs. And that's, of course, not what the, well, I think that's not what our intuition actually is. And it's also not what the data suggests in that, again, there was this kind of nice analysis from Card and DiNardo that skilled immigration to a particular area tends to not only sort of, you know, have positive spillover economic effects in that area, but it tends to increase the wages of the existing residents with that skill in that area. That there's this kind of positive feedback effect. The really broad version of this is the sort of trillion dollar bill on the sidewalk case. This is the kind of Michael Clemens argument that you just take 5% of the world's population into the poorer countries and enable those people to migrate to you know, more affluent places. And that just that, even if they only catch up in wages halfway, that just that results in sort of several trillion dollars a year of sort of aggregate global GDP gain. A 2-3% increase in aggregate global GDP is actually one of the, it's very difficult to conceive of any other intervention that sort of in isolation itself could be, could be so effective. And so I guess both in sort of the broad version along the sort of Michael Clemens lines and the narrower kind of technology or, or sort of Silicon Valley oriented version, it seems highly doubtful that we're on the kind of optimal point of the 
immigration curve. So that, that's true economically. I'm, I'm curious. We've been living through an election that has been a primal scream of America's discomfort with the rising foreign-born population. And I think the number there is that we've gone from roughly 4% foreign-born, I think in 1970, if I'm remembering this correctly, to about 15 to 20% now. And has that changed your intuition or your prior at all about what is actually the, the optimal amount of immigration? I can imagine that the equilibrium that is ideal from an economic standpoint might be much further along than the one we can politically sustain. Right. The short answer is that it has. And I think it's a very kind of subtle question in the sense that on the one hand, as you say, this election is something of a primal scream. On the other hand, the belief in the value of diversity in the U.S. and a diverse society has in fact been increasing over time and, and continues to increase. And so I think kind of a simple read of this as sort of a general reversion or to some kind of nativism is is at least not uniformly or completely true. I think it's a, a sort of a very environment-dependent question. And the optimal level of immigration almost certainly depends on you know, broader economic conditions. And the simple read would be that if, if the economy is growing faster, that people are more willing, because of the sort of positive sum feel, to absorb more immigrants and immigration. And sort of the converse in, in the prevailing environment of at least sort of stagnant median incomes, which presumably is kind of what, what matters at the electoral level. But I presume there are more things too. I, I presume it depends on how successful we are as a society at having these arrivals you know, themselves become productive members and sort of lots of really kind of subtle cultural aspects. And there's a, a good piece recently from Dow that at the New York Times, kind of 10 theses on, on immigration. And there's an observation in, in your conversation with Tyler Cohen recently about sort of how we lack how we lack a language for that which is between unbridled acceptance of any amount of immigration and pure racism. And we're, so we don't quite have a way of talking about things in between. I think that's quite true. And, and there, there are complicated dynamics at play there. It's something that I am starting to question, which I used to take for granted was that the fight was really about unskilled immigration. If you mm -hmm. rewind the clock to something like 2000 and let's say 13, the conventional wisdom in Washington was that everybody agreed. And in Washington, everybody did agree more or less on something like H-1B mm -hmm. visas. But right. the view was Democrats were holding that up because it was a bargaining chip for comprehensive immigration reform. And they wanted to make sure you had a path to citizenship for unauthorized and also lower skilled immigrants who, in the view of the Republicans, that was a much more contentious issue. And mm -hmm. something that I am starting to question is whether that's actually true. While I'm not saying that unskilled immigration, and, and unskilled, I don't really love that term, but, but less marketable skilled immigration is obviously controversial. I think that part of what has really changed, actually, is folks who are higher up the income ladder are feeling mm -hmm. pressure. And it's not clear that, that pressure is real, but it is certainly perceived. And there is this discussion, and, and we were just having it a couple minutes ago, where you mm -hmm. respond to that by saying, well, look at all these super successful immigrants. And mm -hmm. that might actually not be a comforting thing to somebody making $43,000 a year in a community that perceives itself as in decline. 
it doesn't appear to be the case that Trumpism is centered among folks who are really struggling, who are really in competition with unskilled workers. And to some degree, if you look at where it's centered, according to the Gallup data, it's not really centered in places where there's any competition with immigrants at all. But I right. think there's a lot more anger about H-1B visas and competitions among more skilled workers and also outsourcing of more skilled jobs than we have quite absorbed. And I think that there's yep. a view that this conversation goes somewhere safe, and I don't actually think that space is safe. Right. I think that's true. Um, and I think I think there's also a way in which some of those sectors in the economy that sort of represent that middle tier that you're talking about are becoming more significant, right? In that, And this is all kind of tied into the productivity questions we talk about and so on, but that sort of healthcare and education and some of these mid-tier sectors, that th these are in fact growing themselves as, as a fraction of the, the overall economy. And so I think it's perhaps the case that sort of as, as they simply become more significant, as some of the lower skilled sectors like agriculture and so forth sort of just decline in, in overall employment, I think that you see a shift in sort of the political discourse focusing on the issues of you know, those employed in the middle sectors that it kind of tilts in that direction. That is perhaps what we ought to expect. But no, I, I, th I think your observation is on the money. One of the fascinating things I think about that piece of it is that we have a much easier time conceptualizing changes in employment than changes in prices. And I'm not really sure why this is. It's very much a, a thing in the, in the trade and immigration debates, though. When I frankly just look at what expenditures are really going up and are going to go up dangerously in the next, mm -hmm. let's say, 30 years, I look at home health care. Right. A mm -hmm. lot of folks are aging into needing continuous care now. And a lot of yep. families can't afford it or can't get anywhere near afford it and are either going to have to pay for it themselves or something, do it themselves. And I think this is going to be this is already, I think, a much bigger problem in the country than is really acknowledged. And I think it's only going to get worse. Childcare yep. is obviously another one, and, and people talk, I think, pretty frequently about the difficulties there. And these are things where immigrants really change the prices, actually. If you have a city with a lot of relatively low-cost immigrant labor, the real question about how cheap your home health care can be, I mean, is to some degree regulatory because it can keep getting driven down. Similarly, the same is actually true with child care. And, and obviously, it's not that people just want the cheapest child care, but a lot of people do need to be price sensitive in those spaces. And that somehow is not a conversation people are very comfortable with. It's as if any amount of job loss is too much any amount of price differential is immaterial. And I'm not really sure why that is. Possibly you have a, a thesis yeah. on it that I don't. Well, I, th I think, I certainly don't claim to have an answer, but I think this, again, this comes back to the importance of taking the kind of somewhat disaggregated view of some of these changes that are taking place, right? Because we, we talk about median incomes and what's happening in wages and productivity and so forth. And when you break it apart, just the pictures are so different, right? In that there was a nice piece from Klein in the Financial Times that you might have seen a couple of weeks ago about how 88% of our inflation since 1990, and I believe like 96% of the net new jobs came from low productivity or, or traditionally at least low productivity sectors, healthcare and, and education and housing and, and sort of places where it, it's it's really difficult to go and you know, on a per person basis, go get some uh, doubling in the economic output. And so, so returning to our earlier theme, on an economics level, we have some discomfort with talking about what's going on in 
education relative to healthcare and, and home care, as you point out, relative to manufacturing and so forth. There's always the temptation to take the overall view and that perhaps that's becoming somehow less useful. And it's not even at the, the sort of sectoral level. Fernald was looking at in his one of his kind of papers recently at how firm level inequality and dispersion in returns is changing. And that we're seeing not only sort of a, a, a rise in inequality across society, but the data would seem to suggest that what we're actually seeing is rising inequality between firms rather than rising inequality within firms. And he, he sort of comes at this from the perspective of rents and perhaps society, you know, this indicates that, that some of these firms are, are now capable of, of sort of better extracting outsized rents and so on. Or perhaps companies are getting better, some companies are getting better at taking advantage of technology or there's something cultural about them or, or who knows what that enables them to make this progress and, and see this increasing divergence in outcomes. I don't have an answer to your observation, but my sense is that we have to drill deeper on what it is exactly that's going on on a per-sector basis. So to make a meta point about that, I think you have footnoted about 15 <laughs> different papers, columns, op-eds. And, and what's amazing about it is that these, these are things in my world. And, and I think I probably know this literature less well than you do. And during, I guess, your off hours, you're running a billion-dollar payments firm. So something I've heard said about you quite a bit within Silicon Valley is that you're genuinely, even in a world full of learners, that you are a pretty extraordinary learner. So I'm curious about your process for that or your philosophy about that. How do you think about getting up to speed in the areas where you are not? The obvious answer is <laughs> to read as much as possible. And perhaps the footnotes just speak to the impoverished state of my social life. Um, but maybe the, the sort of slight additional color is I think recommendation graphs are incredibly valuable. And certainly I would not have come across one-tenth of the stuff that's been sort of influential for me if there were not people who, who were basically so generous in sharing some of their their own thought stream. Blogs, and especially blogs that link promiscuously and uh, sort of have, have many outpointers are massively valuable. The, the marginal revolutions and the slate star codexes and so forth of the world. And honestly, I think this is where Twitter is, is so remarkable and, and so, so deeply without substitute today. Where else can you go and sort of decide some topic or some person or, or some area is kind of interesting and go and kind of stick an ongoing probe in their head so that you get sort of a, a real-time <laughs> feed of what it is that they're thinking about and learning about and reading and, and, and so on. And, and then you kind of get this iterative process where they in turn, you know, each one of those individuals leads to, to more people and to, to more pointers. There's a very deep way in which I, I'd be a much dumber person or certainly a much more uninformed person, not just without the internet, that's kind of too coarse, but without these pointer graphs. And, and I really value that. So you mentioned Slate Star Codex and Marginal Revolution as blogs, both of which I, I completely agree and recommend as well. What are the Twitter accounts you find most useful? Um, like if you're going to create a list of, you know, for yourself right. of 10, what, what would they be? Man, I, I should probably have come prepared with an answer it, to that. It doesn't need to be um, 10, just, just whatever comes to mind. Right. I really like Tyler, Noah Smith, P. Marka, obviously. Um, I, That's Mark Andreessen. very sad that, uh, that that is, uh, right, Mark Andreessen, that that is no more. 
Julia Gallif and her podcast, Rationally Speaking, tends to get a, a whole host of really interesting thinkers. Danny Rudrick, the economist, tends to very frequently come up with all sorts of great stuff. Stuart Brand, very consistently. Sean Carroll. Scott Aronson, the physicist at MIT, mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't tweet, sadly, but he his blog is another one that I couldn't not mention. There are some of those that most immediately jump to mind. What do you think unites the kinds of, of thinkers you gravitate towards there? Because something that is something that's interesting to me right now is there is an emergent I don't really know what to call it. It's not an ideology. It's almost a culture. But but I would and, and I think it emerges out of I don't fully love this word, but sort of the rationality community, the less wrong community. Mm that unites people like Slate Star Codex, Scott over there, and Scott right. Alexander, and Scott Aronson, yep. and Julia, yep. and yep. Um, obviously Tyler is close with Robin Hansen, who to some degree is an, an inspiration for that community. And I'm, right, I'm right, fascinated right. by that community's emergence online. Yes. In, in, in how would you how would you describe what that is? Because I don't think it's something that unless you've gotten pretty deep into reading this stuff, it doesn't tag itself as a, as a single thing. So I don't think people are sort of tracing its boundaries in the way that the alt-right is currently being traced or <laughs> liberalism is easy to trace. But there's something happening there. It's united by sort of effective altruism arguments and concerns yep. about motivated cognition and, and other things. Right. And as somebody who follows this stuff closely, I'm, I'm fascinated by what it is, but I've not been able to pin it down in a way that feels satisfying to me. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think you're absolutely right that it sort of deserves its own designation. It's kind of separate from, but often connected with the EA, less wrong, rationalist community, but quite distinct. And certainly on the economic side, which for some reason seems to influence it quite a lot, those folks tend to be quite distinctly separate. It's interesting to think about you know, what they have in common. I mean, it, the things that jump to mind are, I think everyone there takes an almost subversive pleasure in discovering that they were wrong or instead of trying to epistemically calibrate. I mean, mm -hmm. Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Discipline, his his book back you know, some years ago is, is sort of a new take on many of his own beliefs and, and things that he sort of previously believed to be true and now has either kind of a diametric view on or, or at least sort of some substantial evolution. And Scott over at Slate Star sort of <laughs> caveats each post at the outset with his own, uh, in his words, epistemic status. And so I think there's something sort of deeply, genuinely truth-seeking uh, about those folks that's quite rare. You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything remotely self-aggrandizing about them, but they do tend to pursue important and you know, in some sense, grandiose things. Like they actually engage with and, and poke at and grapple a little bit with, with questions that are that are very important. Julia will host a podcast on some deep aspect of, of medical regulation, which, you know, of course is of you know enormous long term importance. Or Brian Kaplan, who I guess also deserves to be on this list, or Hansen will sort of <laughs> engage in all sorts of, on the one hand, arcane, but again, significant future topics. And, you know, perhaps uh, as I think about it, something else that they share in common is <laughs> none of them are in positions that I think significantly impede that which they can say. They're allowed to express unorthodox or sort of controversial opinions. They sort of have enough stature to be credible, but not so much that it's kind of censorious. And I guess... 
sort of an adjacent question to this is why aren't there more such people kind of like them? And I think there's sort of a, a negative flip side to Twitter and the internet and the decreasing friction in, in information flow and so on that Coda Hale calls the fan in problem. It's sort of like these new solar plants where, you know, you have this big array farm of mirrors all concentrating solar energy on sort of a, a single receiver. The internet version of this phenomenon where you make a misstep or, or, or say something overly controversial and sort of suddenly the, the wrath of thousands or tens of thousands descends upon you. And so anyway, I, I think these people somehow have the shared characteristic that they can explore some of the edges here in the way that those in perhaps positions of more ostensible power find more difficult. I, and I Mark agree. Andreessen obviously came to came to you know. <laughs> I think he struggled a bit with this. Although I think he he came at it from actually an interestingly different perspective. I agree with a lot of what you said. Although what I do find interesting about it, and what I find useful about it, is, and, and the place I disagree with you is that I think it is more of a herd than you give it credit for. I think it is developed its own signaling, its own conversational set, its own approach to things, and its own kind of internal cheering. And what I like about following this world is that compared to the liberal conservative arguments which structure the literal place I live in, what I find so refreshing about a lot of these writers and, and a lot of other folks, um, the GMU crowd and, and people like that, mm -hmm. is it what is important to them is very different. Politics tends to take for granted that the correct zone of argument is over things like marginal tax rates is a very, very big right. one year after year. And the long-term health of Medicare and Social Security in terms of its financial status. And, you know, there, there's a lot that we do in Washington. that, And it, it is important stuff. I'm not, I'm not arguing that it isn't. But I find that this community has developed a set of obsessions and assumptions that are pretty consistent across authors in it. I'm not sure they're right, but it is a, a refreshing way of challenging what you think matters, right? So AI has become a very, very big thing for, for this group of people. I'm much more skeptical of existential right. AI risk. Immigration and open borders is a very big thing. Mm -hmm. The importance of signaling in everybody's discourse but right, their right, own right. Can, be a, can be a weird <laughs> a weird dimension to this. And I think if you get too deep into the signaling stuff, it can feel like turtles all the way down and, and yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. way to trust sure. anybody. But there are a couple, uh, you know, long-term innovation is clearly one. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of them. And the thing that I think is fascinating and challenging about it is that I am not at all persuaded that we've correctly identified which are our most important problems right now in politics. I think that we, mm -hmm. we have a very much, when you have a finance committee <laughs> as, your, as your kind of central committee in the Senate, every problem is a, right. is a financial one. And I'm not sure that, that these folks have either, but I, I think it's something that we need to put more up for grabs. Healthcare is a great example where I think that we worry way too much about cost in Washington and not yes. nearly enough about value and health. We'll, we'll constantly put up these charts showing that, you know, if spending goes unchecked by 2075, you'll have 40% of GDP being spent on healthcare. And isn't that terrible? And what is that 40% buying you? Are we living twice as long and it's healthy? Then great. If we're exactly where we are now and paying more, that's terrible. But I think that that is a good, it's a really important mental exercise to be involved in. So that I completely agree with. And to some degree, this is this is kind of extemporaneous and, and could be completely wrong. But something that, sort of, as I think about it, that would sort of seem to separate a lot of the kind of the, the Washington conversation from, again, this, this herd to the extent that there are sort of, there's a cohesiveness there, is politics. And, you know, this is kind of necessary, is very sort of first order. It's kind of what are the 
direct effects, what's the trajectory and costs, what are the distributional mechanics and so forth. And I think this herd is is very kind of second order and third order and nth order and thinks a lot about rates and, 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 and sort of general directions and trends and so on. And, and that's kind of a lot of the thinking behind be it economic incentives or signals and mechanisms for knowledge creation and, and, and all of that. And I think part of the affinity that at least I personally feel is, I mean, the, the whole idea behind Stripe is... You know, we're not trying to affect with Stripe a specific outcome in the world. There isn't like a concrete sort of instantiation of something that we're looking to kind of reify. It's we're looking to be a catalytic agent. We just want more technology companies started and we want those companies to be more successful and so on. And so a kind of our effect is not going to be kind of, again, first order. It's it's sort of more the, the indirect uh, effect of, of you know, by changing the infrastructure the kinds of entities that can get created and the, and the number of them that ensue and so on. And so I, I, I think there's a comfort with indirectness and nonlinear downstream effects in that community that's honestly just not very politically charged in both good and bad ways, in that I think we're, to your kind of healthcare point, we're very focused on the costs because that's so tangible. And I think not nearly as concerned about the rate and that I think we should be up in arms at the apparent declining rate of aggregate medical progress. And even if it's not declining, we should be obsessing over the question of what is it that would increase the rate fivefold or tenfold or something like that. And yet that that's not really something that sort of, it, it might be contemplated, you know, late in the evening or something, but it's not a, there's never going to be a political fight over that, that such and such is getting in the way of the, you know, hypothetical potential rate of progress counterfactually being sort of three times higher. And so anyway, I, I think there's partially that distinction too. One thing that I think is, a, it's funny, I was having this conversation recently with someone very much in your world. And one thing that I think is important there and powerful, I've spent at this point, due to various jobs, I've held a fair amount of time around very much politicians and, and people in Washington, and then more recently, a lot of time around Silicon Valley folks. And the primary difference, in my view, is optimism and pessimism. People in Washington mm. have been forged seeing problems that were possible to solve prove impossible to solve. So it isn't technically challenging to increase the number of H-1B visas. We just haven't really done it. <laughs> and you have right. problem after problem after problem like that. We spent a bazillion years not solving our healthcare problems, then eventually got something very compromised down through in Obamacare. And now, yep. you know, we're not being able to fix the problems in Obama. And, and that is the environment in which people here are forged. And in Silicon Valley, which I also think is to some degree the, the culture a lot of these folks come out of as well, or at least have absorbed as well. These are people of the yes. internet in a way. That is a culture forged in seeing impossible problems get solved routinely. And you can argue whether those problems were really were impossible, but it sure feels that way. The idea that Facebook grew from something that didn't exist when I started college to something that more than 2 billion people are part of now, it's extraordinary. And this no. creates very, very different views of what kinds of questions are worth asking. There is a confidence in the way 
people out of this more optimistic world structure and phrase questions, a confidence in long-range predictions. And, and by the way, I do think some of this stuff about people coming out and, and saying, well, I'm only 40% confident in this. Or t- mm-hmm. I actually think a lot of that serves as a false kind of precision. Larry Summers oh, actually was, sure. Larry Summers was famous in the White House for doing this, where he would say to people when they said something, well, what, what is your probability on that? And they'd have to say 23%. <laughs> and that, that is right. just a way of making yourself sound more precise when you really don't have a great way of being it. But I think that one of the ways this conversation gets crosswise is that you go to people in Washington and you say, we need to be asking why the rate of medical increase, the, the rate of progress in medical advances is in fivefold. And they say, yeah, because we're not going to get it there. Whereas maybe we could get cost growth down to, it's already down to GDP, but GDP plus one was the big goal a couple of years ago. Right. And I think that's bad, but I think it's a little bit one of these things where both sides have, there is value in the collision of this sort of sense of limits in Washington. Because I think a lot of things that I am more limit oriented than I think a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley, but I think that Washington really could use a lot more optimism and sense of ambition that it has really had beaten out of it over a long period of time. That I, again, generally completely agree with. To defend those caveating uh, their, or at least Scott from Slatesar and and his sort of uh, epistemic status, it's pretty rare that he he will actually ascribe a percentage to it. Um, It's epistemic status is, I just thought of this last night or sort of I should say I'm not thinking qual- of him. qualitative I, I'm thinking of some other people I know who do the percentage fair thing. yes yes <laughs> yes um, no actually my, my, my favorite slate star epistemic endeavor is, is of course the the grading uh, that that he undertakes every year but no to, to the broader kind of optimism observation there's a lot of truth to that and maybe even that there's kind of an under, underlying aspect to it where people in in the technology world, are somehow thinking more about the tales, and perhaps both in in good and in bad ways, right? Uh, In that it's, yes, this question of how can the rate of progress in in healthcare be sort of three times faster, and aren't we going to get destroyed by our AI overlords, slash won't synthetic biology be the end of all of us, and so forth. And so it's kind of (laughs) both perhaps optimism about what's achievable and what's possible and kind of meta-optimism about the magnitude of the differences that are possible in the future. Again, some of which may be on the, on the left side of the curve. I want to go back to Stripe for a couple minutes and, mm-hmm. and ask, related to this conversation, you talked a bit about the sort of second-order idea of what Stripe is, which is a catalytic force to create more technology companies. And I'm yep. curious, as you've grown, how many people work with Stripe now? We're now about 550. So as you grow from being you and your brother to 550, what do you think that you have done to create a culture that is able to absorb, if you think your culture continues to absorb those kinds of ideas? I mean, how do you, I guess a, a different point is, how do you think about creating culture as your company grows? <laughs> the reason it's interesting is because it's such a nuanced and, and subtle question. At a high level, I think that there's kind of a cultural reason to come back to the beginning of our conversation as to why this had not been solved before. It's because nobody else had in this way combined domain expertise in, on the one hand, developer tools and technology and APIs and everything that's associated with that. And on the other hand, the orientation required to 
understand and to collaborate with and to engage in productive partnership with regulators and financial institutions and you know so much of the messy details of of the real world as a culture we we really try to span both both sides of that and i think there's very frequently an arrogance and sort of a misplaced swagger in silicon valley where because of technology's ability to kind of fairly rapidly solve certain problems that people kind of overextend that and are overly dismissive towards existing received wisdom or or kind of already extant knowledge and i think you yourself have a sort of conservatism not with a a big c but a little c that you know i actually feel qu- quite an affinity towards and that i think is in some way also present in stripe where we're not trying to hash disrupt everything and overthrow the system and supplant that which has preceded us we're trying to figure out a way to work within the grain of it and to go and to make the uh, sort of fruits of that which has already been created accessible in a new way and sort of repurposable in a new way and and so forth and i think that as the scale grows you know stripe now powers hundreds of thousands of businesses in the last year 40% of americans who purchased online purchased from a stripe business as that scale grows and as we come to work with more of these companies and to better understand that which is holding them back and 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 you know what the kind of commonalities are and so forth the returns to that culture are actually sort of increasing in the sense that while obviously we started out with this kind of foundational component of the movement of money and the payment and the relationship with the customer and so on we were able to observe that, that sort of there was this kind of more <laughs> nascent barrier uh, or, or kind of earlier in the funnel barrier to many of the kinds of companies we wanted to work with in terms of just the basic act of getting off the ground and establishing the entity initially such that at the beginning of the year we put together this product called Atlas which helps entrepreneurs anywhere in the world to go into establish a Delaware corporation you know just like any of the major technology companies in the US to obtain a US bank account to get US tax and legal advice and that was qu- quite a significant milestone i think for the company both because i think that's a significant product in that it's long term going to be a, a very big deal that we enable again entrepreneurs anywhere in the world to sort of establish a, a a new company on an equal footing with those in the US but more broadly because it shows that the value of having built this culture where we were able to figure out how to work with banks how to work with regulators and how to build good products and technology to offer this new kind of thing that simply did not exist before that's in some way the core of it how do you think about that culture reproducing itself it's been my observation of just running box.com that every time the organization doubles in size after like we came in and we were originally whatever 15 people then we were 30 then we were 60 we're now about 80 and and, and going up and every time the organization doubles in size it changes really dramatically. You've brought in a lot of new people. You're absorbing a lot of the cultures they came from. You are having less information that is able to flow horizontally. People know a little bit less. Some of the original people, you know, maybe have left at that point. And so one of the things that I certainly, to some degree, I'm asking you very self-interested questions right now because these are things I'm thinking about. But 
one of the fascinating questions as it grows is, and as you become further and further and further from the new recruits, right, from people who've just come into the organization, like when we started our company, I assume it's true for you, on Fridays, we all got in a small room together and talked. And right. that that room has to be a lot bigger <laughs> now. Right. And the conversation, you know, any individual part of it is a value to fewer people. And so how do you think about, you know, as you both recruit and, and try to bring people in, how do you think about making sure like they understand the company the way you do and the way that people who, you know, you felt built its first iterations do? Well, I think that if you look at it as this exercise in sort of repeated transmission and the degree of fidelity to sort of the original broadcast, then getting bigger and having there be more people and more transmissions sure seems like a bad thing. And you're going to get this sort of inevitable kind of monotonic decrease in the fidelity to to the original orientation and philosophy. But I don't think that's actually the right model. I see it more as this kind of collective exercise in trying to figure out what the right orientation for Stripe in fact is. And we embarked from some point in in culture space, but as time progresses and as the organization gets larger, yes, there are more people who sort of have to be in alignment, but we also have more data about what works and how it is that Stripe can be effective. And we have more people in absolute number who've seen things that have worked well and that have, who themselves have kind of some understanding of what it is that kind of the the platonic stripe is that that we started some distance from and that we're sort of trying to kind of generally hew towards. And so in some ways, certainly stripe now has a better understanding than we had in the past of what it is that stripe should be. And kind of the the sort of positive version is that we're, we're, we're getting better data on this question over time. That we're, that we're developing this kind of superior collective understanding. And yeah, you are kind of fighting with the entropy of new people joining and that they sort of necessarily have, have far less context. Although even there, I think we're getting much better at assisting people with sort of self-selection. Where when, when I'm talking to people now who may be interested in joining Stripe, I think I can do a pretty good job of telling them why they may want to join Stripe and the kinds of people who tend to really enjoy and and sort of be fulfilled with and kind of impactful in in, in their time here and why they may not want to and the things which, if you're seeking some particular set of experiences, why Stripe may not be a good fit. And so I think that the view of struggling against this sort of ever-growing tide in this kind of structurally unwinnable effort is not quite right. And I think there were sort of proofs by existence of this in that I think there were cultures, (laughs) I'm trying to think of an organization other than Apple, because I think Apple is kind of the reductio ad absurdum uh, of many different things. But, But let's just go at that for a second, where I think it's quite possible that sort of, in fact, almost certainly the case that Apple is more Apple now than they were 20 years ago, or even just post Steve Jobs' return. Broadly speaking, I'm I'm more optimistic on this question than maybe some people are. It's funny. I like the way you you put that last point. We talk a lot internally about how do we become more like ourselves. And I I think it's like a fascinating question for companies because to some degree, I think you start out with less of an idea of who you are than you often think. 
Um, For you have, sure. You have I mean, intuitions this... and you have predictions, but some of those prove to be wrong and, and who you are is sort of chiseled away by failure and by success. Absolutely. And it's funny, I was going to use the metaphor of, of chiseling away um, because it, it, it certainly feels like that. And sometimes you have sort of an intuition that this is the right direction and it proves to be correct, but it's kind of only in hindsight that you can quite see why and sort of properly project forwards. The chiseling away metaphor and, and sort of the, the construction of this more sort of clearly defined and kind of more, more sharply cut perspective on the organization's identity, it's kind of having that sharper relief as, as a guidepost to the future people is perhaps why this can work. Who's the, the working CEO today who you admire most? Hmm. With Stripe, we really try to, and kind of of necessity, we, we think a lot about the long term in that because we're building infrastructure, it takes years for the consequences of what we build to, to kind of become fully realized and to sort of for the indirect and the second order effects to play out. And so the way in which Jeff Bezos has been persistently and, and continually able to use time horizons as sort of a competitive advantage versus other organizations is something I've very deep respect for. And it sounds like such an easy thing, right? And just, <laughs> no, not to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impatient. <laughs> There's something quite deep about the notion of using time horizons as a competitive advantage, right? Uh, in that you're simply willing to wait longer than other people. Uh, and you have sort of an organization that's sort of thusly oriented. And of course, you, you see this play out in, in so much of what they do and kind of the, the, the patience that they're willing to maintain. He would be high on my list. What's fascinating is that it's not even that long of a time horizon. Uh, there, there's a great there's a great line. I think it's from Bill Gates, or at least that's who I heard say it, which is that people overestimate what they can accomplish in a year or two and underestimate right. what they can accomplish in 10. And yeah, I think that is Gates. Yeah. And it, it, I, I think that's because <laughs> when you talk about, I mean, Amazon, it's not. Disney. It's not been around forever. You know, a lot of the, the time right. horizons, Amazon Web Services has only been around really a couple of years. The fascinating thing about Bezos, I think, is that he has been able to force the market to absorb his time horizon that, that right. for profitability. Of, of all the things that he's done, and he's done many, many, many amazing things, the one that I find in some ways most impressive is that he was able to impose a very different vision of what the rhythm for a retailer's profitability should be on Wall Street. And so he was able to somehow merge the access to capital of being public with the time horizon of being private and being private led by a guy who has a very, very deep sense of patience. And that's a real amazing trick. That is, I think, one of the great business moves of, of, of our age. I agree. I agree. I think people forget that this wasn't always easy and that Amazon at sort of various points uh, early in its life as a public company, the market didn't immediately comply with uh, with this plan and with this desire to take the, the, the longer view of things. But to his great credit, he found a way to make it work and I guess in some sense uh, developed that trust with the market and uh, as he would lightly put it, I think, um, earned the right shareholders. And I think kind of people underestimate how important it is and, and just how significant, I guess, it is, who exactly it is that holds your stock. People sort of tend to view it as this sort of amorphous, uh, you know, faceless aggregate thing. 
Uh, and actually, just now that I think about it a little bit more, another person who, who I'd sort of have to mention, just because I think he's so unusual, without precedent to such a degree, is is Jim Simons from Renaissance, in that he's Renaissance published in yeah exactly, um, in that this enormously successful hedge fund with who knows how much under management. I think it's now twenty five billion or something like that. You know, he himself is a multi-billionaire many times over, was also a professor of mathematics, you know, is published in quantum field theory, employs a sort of long roster of scientists, and as far as I know, is is still relatively active in, in academic work. And I, I don't know of uh, very many folks who have been able to both be at and, and even stay at the leading edge in, in you know, some, some fairly arcane fields and achieve such, you know, truly remarkable outsized uh, success in business. Let, let me ask you a question that is related to this one, which is a view I hold is that we journalistically and culturally overrate technology companies and financial companies that that one after the other, they have And so been, we're right at the intersection. We are right of, at the intersection of, of, of that. Of being overrated. Yeah, right. One after the... <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> one after the other, they have been sort of the cultural darlings, right? That if, we're, if an op-ed page is going to go have somebody who is not an economist, talked about the economy. Ten years ago, they were going to somebody from Goldman Sachs. Now they're going to a venture capitalist like Mark Andreessen. What is a company that does not exist in those two fields? Because I think it's easy to talk about the Apples and the Facebooks and the, the Amazons. Right. Those are the stories we really know. Right. What is a company that is maybe a bit older, that exists in a more traditional field, that you look at and think has achieved something really remarkable as a company? Hmm. Because of the uh, the selection bias, an awful lot of the leaders in various industries over the last century or so have been fascinatingly well-run organizations, be that in entertainment or, you know, I, I think there's a whole lot that's deeply interesting about, about Walmart and sort of how they structured themselves and the sort of the, the nature of, of their culture. Or, you know, General Motors. Now, of course, <laughs> maybe here in, in the world of technology, we've become taken with the, the Teslas of the world and so forth. But when you look at what, you know, Alfred Sloan did uh, at General Motors and sort of his managerial practices there and sort of how they thought about measurement of the business and sort of where they should invest their resources and their, and their efforts and so on. My Years with General Motors is, is a really good and, and, and instructive book. And so I actually think that it's not that there are a few kind of rough gems in <laughs> the antecedents to the finance and the technology companies <laughs> um, or sort of you know, particular isolated cases we can learn from. Any of the winners in any of these industries, at least my experience so far has been, they're almost always, uh, because they you know, reached the top of the pile having had to kind of <laughs> elbow thousands of other you know, would-be contenders out of the way you know, uh, along their path, that there's almost always things to take away from it. All right. I know I've kept you here for a long time, so I will ask you the, the final question here. What are three books you've read that have mattered to you, that have influenced you, that you would recommend to the audience? Hmm. I really like David Deutsch, and I thought The Beginning of Infinity uh, was a really great book. Uh, and sort of great because it uh, it sort of really takes ideas, or you know, he, he tends to focus on the notion of explanations seriously. And sort of what is an idea, an explanation, what's the, you know, how do they compound, how do they interact with each other, uh, uh, and so on. 
in a way that's very original. And 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 he, I mean, the, the book is kind of you know, especially with that description, it sounds sort of very vague and you know, hand wavy and philosophical and so on. But you know, he, he himself is is a an extraordinarily creative physicist and did some important seminal work in quantum computing including inventing one of the kind of foundational original algorithms uh, in the field, sort of showing that quantum computing uh, kind of could exist in some sense or, or was superior to classical computing. That's a, a book that really kind of influenced my own thinking. Another one is The Dream Machine by Mitchell Waldrop, which is kind of nominally a biography of J.C.R. Licklider, who was kind of the guy behind so much of the early work in both computing and the internet and the, sort of the, the creation of, of, of both. And really it's a book about ideas and how sort of, you know, in some ways non-accidental it was that these things came to pass and how the right kind of support and the right kind of vision and all the kind of un, unglamorous stuff of the right sort of, you know, <laughs> communication between humans and the right culture produce such kind of enormous outsized effects. Again, we, we, we always look for structural explanations in, in that which happens and hasn't happened and so on. But this is a book that I think really speaks to how the, the idea matters. In terms of the third, The Art of Doing Science and Engineering by Richard Hamming. So Hamming did you know, all kinds of interesting work in mathematics and worked at Bell Labs and invented a new kind of error-correcting code and, and so on. But he wrote this book about sort of uh, meta-learning. And I thought it was written at sort of a very interesting level in that, that there are all these, of course, books about sort of particular domains and you know, that teach you something about some narrow area. And there are all these, you know, very open-ended books about how to how to live your life or how to learn or something like that, but but they always feel kind of a bit too general. The art of doing science and engineering is sort of interestingly in the middle where it, it describes particular kind of concepts and ways of thinking that Hamming found valuable, but it's also sort of career advice. And again, sort of the, the, the broader take on, on just how to think about sort of what it is that you do with your time uh, in a way that, um, you know, again, I really sort of shaped my thinking. Uh, and is, in some sense, he thinks a lot about sort of, again, systems and incentives and, and second order effects and so on. But probably if I had a bit more time to think about this question, I would come up with a, a wholly different list or something. I, I, I try to, because I get asked this question, feel bad that I don't have better answers. I just dumped a bunch of books on my website. And so if you go to the bookshelf on my site, there's a, a list of books that I've tried to kind of color code a little bit based on, you know, which ones I... I most recommend because I'm I'm so bad at mentally sorting over all of them. Uh, you know, how would people time. find your website? PatrickCollison.com uh, slash bookshelf. And, and I'm buying that Infinity was, Book. That it, book sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I am. I'm never sure if others enjoy it as much as I did. You know, maybe maybe it's one of those books that I read it at the right moment or on the right vacation or something, such that it sort of really influenced me. And you'll pick it up and you'll read it and kind of soon after discard it. But th there's you know, I think people um, don't think enough about uh, how remarkable this. This sounds kind of again overly pompous or something, uh, and so I probably wouldn't you know f phrase it this way on a podcast or something. But like how amazing uh, the, the enlightenment is, yeah. uh, like how we, we should be sort of stupefied uh, by 
by what's happened over the last 200, 250 years. Um, because, like, why did that suddenly happen? Um, why didn't it happen earlier? Uh, like, the Romans had the necessary technology to build the steam engine, and it didn't happen. And, and you know, the Mughals probably did in, in India and the you know, various dynasties in China and, and, and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, where does all this technology come from and the societal progress and all of the rest? Um, and and you, as you sort of try to mine this question, you sort of can't but be led back to it. Something about how we started to think and the kinds of ideas we started to generate. Um, and once you get to that point, it sort of feels like you've sort of reached the end and there isn't a whole lot that one can say about how we generate ideas and, and how we think and so on. It, it just it feels too, too vague and abstract. Uh, and the beginning of infinity is kind of uh, taking that seriously and trying to figure out uh, you know, what, what we can um, what we can make of that because you know there's uh, well actually <laughs> maybe another book I, I ought to have mentioned is Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit. Uh, no, you're not allowed to recommend nominally... that to people. It's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's too well, it's, it's too much of a humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, right, I, I, that that's. Also, probably true, but no. I, I think there's something very deep in that. Just in the in the basic notion of, maybe you don't need to read it. Just uh, think about the idea that future people matter more than you think, and that your discount rate on time is probably higher than it than it should be. Um, and you know, imagine if the Enlightenment hadn't happened, and and we were sort of still, I don't know, nursing our oil lamps uh, here in the year you know, 2016. And why didn't that happen? Um, and I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like we're kind of inured uh, uh, to, to that question and just sort of somehow take it for granted. Whereas, I don't know, it feels like if you had to reduce all of humanity and civilization to uh, to sort of a single important question, it, it feels like you know it could potentially be, be be that one of why did that happen and what determines the rate and why isn't it higher and you know, all of those kind of adjacent ones. Well, one of the things that I so I have a, a view on this which is a little bit weird, which is one way in which we've underestimated the importance of the Enlightenment is that we have sort of, and this is not a word, biologized it. We have <laughs> come to believe that our brains are naturally truth-seeking machines. When I think that a lot of research about cognitive biases and the way people think show that we're, we're actually very well built for just making other people in our group happy. And right. I think that we take for Granted, not just the, the the enlightenment itself, but that we are ourselves acting in accordance with its principles most of the time, because we have somehow absorbed it culturally as part of us as a sort of net, like human beings are this way, when in fact they aren't this way. And and I think that the the yes. great lesson of that kind of of reading into that part of our history is to say, nope, there was nothing about your brain. Like your yes. ancestors then were as smart as you are. There was nothing about your brain that made it an effective truth seeking machine. Um, there <laughs> so, was something, so, uh, there was a disconnected moment in history that gave you tools, but you can lose those tools or you can not use them or forget them or misuse them. And I think that's the, something the, that is hard to, hard to keep an eye on. So, so, so that, that, uh, Deutsch would be, you know, absolutely alongside you in, in, uh, agreeing upon. And there's actually, um, again, this sounds kind of, uh, you know, well, um, <laughs> I don't mean to sound... Now, now that you've called reasons and persons, uh, you know, a humble brag, now I'm self-conscious <laughs> recommending anything. But um, 
Uh, there's a legitimately fun paper uh, on exactly that about uh, how the human brain, we think it's adapted to reason and it just isn't. It's actually adapted to winning arguments. Yeah. Um, and, this is Dan Cahan's uh, work? Uh, this was, no, it's, it's, it's a Spur Bay, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's Spur Bay is the guy's name. Uh, let me just quickly see if I can. Yeah, we're we're well here. adapted to winning arguments and to signaling group identity and belonging. Yes. Um, Which like, in part is what uh, the like being good at arguments is for. I mean, so I'm, I'm pretty influenced by this guy, Dan Kahan at Yale, who does a lot of work on political reasoning. And, and something I think that his work yep. shows very well is that, yeah, what we're really good at doing is figuring out why we should come to the conclusions that make the most sense for our standing in our social world. Yes. So this is this is not his work, and I don't know if it has any kind of direct you know, what was influenced by or did influence in turn. Um, but but it, you know, as Spurbay's record, I just pulled it up here on my phone, and it is that the the, the paper is <laughs> why do humans reason uh, arguments for an argumentative theory? And Spurbay is S P E R B E R. Um, but he he would basically agree with that. Um, uh, that it's. Uh, uh, we we want to convince others of things that are expedient for us, um, which is sort of you know <laughs> directionally similar to, but quite importantly different from that which is right. <laughs> yes, uh, there's a great John John Height in his book um, has a great line where he says, you know, the we like to imagine that um, I forget exactly what it is. We said I think we like to imagine that the brain is a scientist, but it's actually a press secretary. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the point of a press like secretary a is it doesn't it doesn't it makes good argument. A press secretary can make a good argument, but never says you're right. I was wrong about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and so maybe coming back to the the herd point um, uh, with the, the the sort of the I don't know uh, crypto rationalists um, uh, that they're unusual scientists um, uh, in a world of press secretaries. Yeah, that might be, at least some of the time, I think that might be right. Um, and then sometimes I think they're press secretaries too. Uh, and I think I, I think this is one of the great, this is one of the hard things about this kind of, of, um, of work. It's that I think that the more you dig into it, the more it seems to suggest that smart people have more of this in them, not less. That some of our ideas that, oh, if you're just smart enough and you have a rational style of argument, you'll, you'll really be exempted. Uh, but actually, it means that to some degree you have more horsepower and raw material to do this to yourself with. And that's not yeah. to take anything away from from folks who are trying very hard to work on this in themselves. And, and I think the crypto rationalists, like a lot of other people, are, are working very hard to find truth. But Although um, to be mm-hmm. – uh, well, ironically, I think that the, um, this, the, the folks in the rationalism penumbra – like I, I don't think that – well, certainly – Tyler or Noah Smith um, or Stuart Brand or even, well, <laughs> to some degree, Julia are, are rationalists in the kind of capital R sense. I think they're kind of, you know, uh, connected to, but but not quite uh, right, in yeah. the part of the community. Um, uh, and ironically, I, I, I often find them uh, more rational um, mm-hmm. than, than um, those who sort of uh, proudly affix uh, the, the you know the pin to their lapel. That's a good place to end. Patrick Collison, thank <laughs> you very much. I am grateful. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks for having me.
Thank you to Patrick. That was fantastic. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you to all of you for being here. To my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, but it is powered by the interest and attention of all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.